Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello and welcome to Sentimental in the City, a mini-series where we talk about each season Sex and City for the great American novel it truly is. My name is Hollywood Kiss, Caroline Donahue, and joining me is Jack Berger's failed novel, Pandora's Hurricane, Dolly Alderton. Hello. Hello. Question. How much would you be happy to fly out of your current account right now <laughs> for a proof of Pandora's Hurricane? Oh my God. Okay, so follow-up question. Is it like just the prop they made? No, no, or no. Or is it the book that I think Jack Berger wrote? The, the actual book, yeah, yeah. 300 pounds. <laughs> oh, I, my, my absolute highest software is going to be 50. <laughs> okay, but for the prop they made for the thing, I would probably spend upwards again. <laughs> We were going to do all of series six in one episode, but bearing in mind that series five was eight episodes and, I mean, the raw recording was three and a half hours. <laughs> Twas, yes. <laughs> Tell you what, both you and I could really ruin each other with, like, every week with the hour and a half that we cut out of Sentimental oh, yeah. in the Oh, yeah, the raw edit. Maybe that'll be our charity auction. <laughs> <laughs> the files, the raw files. Yeah, so we decided that, A of all, we don't want this podcast to end too soon because we're having so much fun with it. Yes. B of all, 20 episodes is a lot of episodes and there's a lot of stuff in those episodes. There's like, you know, we have Burger and we have the Russian, we have the Paris stuff, we have Big coming back around, we have Big's heart stuff. It's like, it's so huge and it's such a... Um, it's it's a real, it's not a race to the finish line. It's a real meander to the finish line. And I feel like I wanted to treat all of it with respect. The other thing with this series that makes it so jam-packed and also makes it so satisfying is they really do tie up a lot of loose ends. Yeah, Like even the fact that there's an Aiden bump in, in this at the beginning of this series, in the first half, it feels like they wanted to be able to have some sort of resolution with that character. It's like, it really feels like a farewell tour to a lot of different yes. subplots and sub characters. And so they really do the rounds of every character and all those various layers of their lives that we've seen over the last six years. That's so true. And um, so not only will we be doing season six in two parts, we will also be doing a full episode just for the first film. And then we will have an additional episode that will be partially dedicated to the second film. But then we sort of, as we've said on the podcast before, we were kind of conscientious that we have had so much fun doing this and the second movie leaves a bad taste in both of our mouths. Mm. Um, 
And I think that goes for most of the fandom. So we will be spending some time on the second film and, and trying to talk about as much as we can about the good stuff about it and as little as we can about the failures of it because they've been so well documented elsewhere. And then we're going to spend some time just doing a Q&A uh, because lots of people have been in contact and I think that we should have it. And do you know what we love more than we love Sex in the City, the second movie? It's the listeners of Sentimental in the City. I love these guys so much. <laughs> these guys. These guys. I'm obsessed with these guys. I'm obsessed with these guys. Stone cold <laughs> legends. We have had fan art. Yeah. Some of it is available on Redbubble, including the train spotting poster <laughs> I explicitly requested. Um, we have had the playbill of the McDougals are coming for supper. We're very grateful for that. And on top of that, I think we've both received some like amazing messages from people. And the ones, I don't know about you, but the ones that have gotten me the most are the ones where people have been like, I've really been having a tough time and I'm I'm just really yeah. grateful that I have this on a Thursday. And like, it's been a hard time to be a person lately. It's been a hard time to be a Londoner. It's a hard time to be a woman. It's like, it's been really fucking shit. And I'm not going to yeah. go into the reasons why, because we all know. And to have people get in contact and be like, this week was really hard and this really helped has been it's made me feel like good to be on the planet me too so please send us your questions yes send us questions about the show and here i mean i want to have an example here are the questions that i don't want to get i don't want to get why didn't you talk about this episode yes why didn't you talk about this carrie clanger why didn't you talk about my favorite thing don't want that don't bring that energy to me what i do want i want like I don't know. What do you think Jack Berger's podcast is like? Yes, that's what we want. Yeah. I want, what do you love most about Dolly? I want, <laughs> that's, that's what I want. I want love and I want open-hearted, geeky questions. And do you know what else I want? I want succinct anecdotes relating to Sex in the City. Anecdotes, Emphasis on the word succinct. And anecdotes and memory. So I'm very aware that I am inviting every podcaster's worst nightmare, which is a comment, more of a comment than a question. <laughs> but I would quite enjoy listening to some of those. So choose your words carefully. Streamline your thoughts. Yeah. And share your stories. <laughs> Yes, and please, please email them. And this is an important part. Email them to sentimentalpod at gmail.com. Um, don't DM either of us because I think they'll just get lost that way. I would much rather to have them all in one place. Um, so sentimentalpod at gmail.com. We'll try and get through as many as we can. Ooh, I feel like I'm a TV show host in the 90s saying it's all exciting, this. It's exciting, isn't it? It's exciting. And it's on a postcard. So this week's episode, we will be talking about the themes of this first half of series six and the various relationships and character developments, but we will be using every episode as a lamppost. <laughs> <laughs> lamppost, signpost, lamppost. Um, because we've got the time to. Yes, we do. And since we have so much time, why don't you, for the, you know... Second to last time, I think. Oh. Take us through our manifesto. <laughs> so, 
This is not a forensic episode by episode analysis. If that's what you're after, then Juno Dawson does a brilliant podcast called So I Got to Thinking. This is not a judgment or a breakdown of the more problematic elements of the show, although we will talk about them if they come up. This is not a place where we roll our eyes about things that people have already rolled their eyes about before. This is not going to be jam-packed with trivia, but if you're interested, we recommend Sex and the City and Us, a very geeky book that we adore by Jennifer Keishan Armstrong. We're interested in stepping back and looking at each season as an individual piece of work, looking at themes, character journeys and lasting messages of it and analysing it for the great American novel it truly is. Do we know the most about Sex and the City, Caroline? We certainly do not, but we sure as eggs do feel the most. <laughs> I have, you haven't had the opportunity to say that bit yet. I thought I would give you a run. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> right, that's all the bollocks out of the way. Shall we start with the big stories of season six, part one? The big stories of season six, part one, are all relationship stories, I think. Mm, yeah. All four of the girls at the beginning of season six all have burgeoning relationships, don't they? Yes, I think I did. They did they ha- so we have um, Carrie and Berger and their struggles. And it is a struggle. Mm-hmm. We have Charlotte and Harry and Judaism. And <laughs> we have uh, Dr. Robert and Miranda and Steve. We have Samantha and Smith. And we have um, Miranda finally having some nice hair. God, what a payoff. Six years we've been waiting for that. Finally, she's got a good haircut. The most terse relationship in Second City is not between Carrie and Big, but between Cynthia Nixon and her stylist. (laughs) Why did they take them that long? It's so palpably different. I feel like Miranda has such a different energy this series just because she doesn't have a shit lid. (laughs) (laughs) I've got some ideas about the great American novel. It's hard because we're obviously splitting this between two episodes. So I'll be interested to see whether this is two separate novels or two novellas. But I think the great American novel of season six, part one, is about settling, working on yourself, working on things, like staying put in relationships and trying to change yourself to suit the parameters of growth and the relationship and also finding the differences and nuances between what is being tolerant and growing and and compromising in a healthy adult way Mm. and what is stifling yourself, like putting yourself in all different kinds of positions in order to make something work, suppressing yourself, like all these things, particularly that... Carrie goes through with Berger I think that's really it because on the one hand you have someone like like Charlotte and Harry where Charlotte is changing herself in this um really fundamental and spiritual way but it's something that gives her a lot of growth and a lot of grit yeah whereas Carrie's changing herself for Berger and she's sort of you know, not telling him about her check from France she's sort of playing down her stuff she's kind of acting ashamed on the red carpet at um, Smith's gig, you know, like it's it's very interesting seeing those two things play off against each other. And then you also have that thing of like, you know, Samantha trying to see what having a real boyfriend will look like with Smith and holding his hand and, and all that kind of stuff. And, and, and even 
Miranda in the very early parts of the season where she realizes that she's in love with Steve and she tries to sort of mold herself into this sort of soft person for him and it's already too late you know Mm. she's softened too much and too late it's quite a terrible moral for a few episodes you know when she's like this Miranda that we never would have had a few years ago which is like her icing cupcakes for Debbie and crying yeah you know yeah I totally agree with you I think that is a fantastic hypothesis unsurprisingly (laughs) and (laughs) plot twist Dolly thinks Caroline said something really smart about sex in the city. <laughs> Plot twist, Caroline's thrilled. <laughs> no one accepts compliments about their intellect easier than me. <laughs> I think that not only is that the great American novel of this half of the series, and I wouldn't be surprised if we find that there's another big overarching theme in the second half of the series because they did film and put out this series as two separate parts which I'd forgotten so they did separate these two they split the narrative of this series and I remember Mm. I think when we come back in part two they all look quite different as well yes yes I think they do yeah I I I don't think they split it like we're splitting I don't think they did 10 and 10 did they they did like 12 12 and and 8 or something yeah yeah um it's basically the Russian years of that of that (laughs) it's <laughs> that second oh, half the most erotic years <laughs> we're gonna have rouse next episode i can tell um, I, wonder, I wonder if we'll still be friends by the end of next week i know i know it's gonna be touch and go um but i think that that is also your reading of this half of the series of that being the big story i also think that that is the great american novel of relationships growing up and i feel like it's something that's not really spoken about that as you said like we're all suddenly expected to have this internal barometer that can detect when something is healthy compromise and when it's being realistic and when you're frittering your life away for something that's not satisfying you anymore. And I still like don't know how you're meant to differentiate that stuff. And I think people can get it really wrong. I remember when I started dating again in my 30s after having a break from dating, dating a guy who I had nothing in common with and there was zero spark but I just thought well I've turned 30 now and this is what this is what older relationships are like you're meant to it's not you know it's not meant to be exciting all the time and then someone a close friend of mine reminding me that you know it doesn't have to be as binary as one or the other but it is I think it's a really difficult thing to like I, I don't trust my own instincts on it sometimes I think you're so right. That's such a good point. I'm, I think that people are going to listen to you saying that and have a couple of light bulb moments about it because I think you're totally right. And it's such an unfair expectation to have on someone in the moment, like of, of, of someone to know whether they're changing for the good or changing for, for the bad. And, yeah. and what's so interesting about this series as well is that um, even though we've seen Carrie in so many relationships at this point, long and short we've never seen her like really grit her teeth and work at one before yeah and like she's had this thing with big where it's like you know she'll sort of fly off the handle and do something a bit mad and then it'll kind of the status quo will ultimately go back to zero by the end of the episode and we've had her sort of struggling with like domestic stuff with Aiden but like with stuff with Berger it's like it's like work 
Like, it's, it looks like hard work, it feels like hard work. It's such a testament to the writers and to the performers that it remains fun to watch because if you were actually in it, it would be exhausting. Totally. I think we've all been in relationships like that before. It's normally like at the very tail end of something rather than something that's kind of new. But that feeling of like, oh, there's just a, a, a row or a difficulty at every fucking turn. Why isn't yeah. this easy? It's like the fun anything that could be fun always turns any like nice dinner we go out for there's always like some weird comment that ruins it every you know like just those awkward miserable relationships that personally I'm really glad to be reminded of because it makes me really really happy to be single (laughs) (laughs) like when I watch that burger carry relationship I'm reminded of like like I don't know like a lot of barbed comments in the M&S aisle in in Brixton on a Sunday when we're hungover and a lot of like just those shitty things about relationships that are so annoying Um, and it just feels like Burger and Carrie it's just like that that feels like the lion's share of that relationship is just like awkwardness and difficulties and stress and ickiness yeah yeah oh I so get you but I'm so glad as well that like I've had a lot of those relationships, but I'm, I feel very thankful that I got them out of my system very young. Like yeah. I had a lot, as I've said many times on this podcast before about my storied young sex life, <laughs> um, I had a lot of boyfriends very young and a lot of them were a lot older. And, um, and you know, we're, we're obviously going out with the younger girl for a very distinct reason, which is that they're very easy to control and manipulate. Yeah. And like having, having this sort of like boot camp of like, men who were trying to change me or or you know whatever so in my kind of adult life when things started getting when we all started getting to ages where things were serious with men I feel like I felt like I had this really great run of experience where I knew my barometer was very finely tuned you know yeah and that is the thing that is how you get the barometer like that's how you kickstart it into accuracy annoyingly it's just lots of different experiences and lots of different relationships and being around lots of other different relationships so it's basically age really I think is the thing that helps you differentiate um you know what's good for you and what what isn't good for you what's asking too much of life and what's asking too little yeah and I guess the only and the thing is when you're in those situations you'll ask a million people what their opinion is and they'll all give you a different thing of whether you're being you know unreasonable or whatever but the only barometer that's worth paying attention to it's your own discomfort it's your own like yeah your own internal sense of fuck this you know yeah (laughs) like oh this felt good i know (laughs) really good (laughs) so let's talk about the opening of that of that first episode because i think you have some thoughts on it (laughs) i just think it's so weird (laughs) it's so it's i think it's weird it is weird and it begins in the city that never sleeps. It's remarkable when you somehow manage to oversleep. And it's Carrie bursting out of her flat, um, looking gorgeous, rushing, running in her high, high heels. She has to go downtown to Wall Street to ring the bell for the New York Star because it's now trading publicly. She gets into a cab. The cab is gridlocked. Then she has to get the tube or the subway. Which is the only um, scene where any character takes the subway in Sex and the City. And it makes it seem like we're about to to watch a show or the whole kind of crux of the series is going to be this kind of like frenetic 
um, show about business and women and glamour and like, oh, the New York Star is trading publicly. This is going to mean big things for Carrie. It never comes up again. No. Uh, It's super lazy. And it is, you know, when you talk about those like, film and TV cliches of like beginning something with someone's hand on an alarm clock or, you know, like all those little tropes. One of them is beginning a series or a film where a character is like rushing through a city. And it's, it's basically when you don't have an idea for a story, we used to, we used to consider this at the beginning of like every series of reality shows, structured reality shows that I worked on of like, it's someone in the center of the city and the city is their playground and they're rushing through it and they are so a part of the city. They look like the architecture and we're playing fast paced music and it's frantic and it's glamorous and it's urban. It's like an action film. And it's always because you've got no idea for what the story should be. And actually they kind of take the piss out of that idea in the series before, when they present her with her book cover and they're like, you're in the city and it's fast paced and it's blah, blah, blah. And it's such a cheesy fucking idea. And yet here they are doing it in the first oh scene of series God. six. Oh, you're so, it's so good. You're so right. Oh, I'm so embarrassed for them. <laughs> um, I remember this is the first series of Sex and City that I watched um, as it was broadcasting. And I think I was, you know, 16 or, or whatever. And so oh, I really, with me I really, as well. Yeah. yeah. And, I, and I remember there was all these TV spots about it. And it was this big deal. Like at this point, this was an internationally famous show. You know, everybody knew about it. Everybody knew what was happening. There was like leaked things in the um, tabloids all the time of them <gasps> on the street Heat magazine. It. Yes. Yes. I remember. Yes. And I remember, and you know how it's like, for some reason, the things that burn in my mind more than anything else is like weird out of context clips with um, with various directors and writers in front of green screens with their own show in the background. Those things stick in my head very much. But I remember Michael Patrick King saying, we wanted to open it on her running down the street in heels because we wanted to show everyone that just because Sarah Jessica Parker had had a baby, that Carrie was still going to be this young, lively, like hot sort of protagonist, which at the time when I saw that, I was like, that's that's cool. I get that. But looking back, I was like, what a fucking misogynist thing to say. Yeah, that, <laughs> yeah, that does not sound good. <laughs> no, no. Does not sound good, but nonetheless, it makes sense. Maybe though. Michael Patrick didn't say it. It makes sense because I can see how, like, at this point, she's a big star. You know, I remember there being a lot of, um, you know, pap fa- shots of uh, Sajika Parker with her kids and stuff, and and maybe they did feel like they had to point that out that you know they were different characters. So this is the episode where we see Miranda and Steve really in the thick of that first year of parenthood. Uh, working out how they co-parent together. And there is a scene where Miranda is is doing Brady's diaper. By the way, they changed the baby for this series. They changed the baby so much. There's so many babies going around. I know. And this might be, I should have checked this. I think the first baby that they used in the first... <laughs> Something very funny about the phrase, the first baby that they used. Also, just occasionally I hear myself say these sentences or I hear you say these sentences. I'm like, I can just imagine the people switching off who aren't that big a fans of the show who watched it like once at uni. 
<laughs> so goodbye, everyone who's tuning out goodbye. now. <laughs> but I think the first baby, Caroline, is the one that becomes grown-up Brady. And then the baby that they use here is a placeholder baby because um, I've got a bit of a chunkier head. Anyway. Um... <laughs> All the babies that play Brady are tanks. <laughs> They're big babies. <laughs> They're serious units, these babies. <laughs> They're just getting them off a conveyor belt. Um, <laughs> um, but yeah, so they're changing yeah. the diaper and then Miranda gets baby poo on her head. They are larking about and being very intimate and sweet and warm with each other and silly with each other. And Miranda just has this moment where she looks across at Steve and she realizes that she loves him. And uh, that's a big moment for Miranda. She's never really admitted it to herself ever really since she met Steve. And then she tells Carrie and she, instead of, instead of immediately expressing her love for Steve, she is spiky and snappy and uh, weird with him. I'm going to say something you're not going to like. What's that? Don't believe it. Yeah, I feel the same way. I just, I, I know it way. makes sense for films and TV for this to happen. I don't think people suddenly realise they love each other. I just don't believe it. I love When Harry Met Sally so mm. much. I don't believe it. I just don't, I've never known love to function like that, personally, in my life. I agree. I agree. And this is not going to sound great, but... Oof, I know exactly I what you're going to say, and I agree with you. <laughs> These people who... Re these people who realise they're in love, is it because there are no better options? Is this what you're going to say? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Really? Is that what you're going to say? Yes, that's what yeah. I was going to say. Yeah. <laughs> that's what I was going to say! I know, we've got a shared brain. These people, these people who are like, we were friends for years. Yeah. Um, yeah. I told him everything. He yeah. was like my best guy mate. And then I realised one day that I was in love with him. I was like, one day when you were 34. <laughs> One day when you were 34 and you ran out of blokes on the hinge. Yeah, yeah. I get it. I get it. I get it. I don't judge it, but don't try and sell me on this random like, oh, and I looked up and I loved him all a lot. No. I it just doesn't, doesn't work that like way. that, does it? I don't think, I also don't think that the Miranda that we know would be that fucked about Debbie. Yeah. I think she's so, and that's, this is her, to her detriment. I think she's so superior and she's so like, doesn't think that highly of most of the people in Steve's life that she would be like, yeah, Debbie's 10 years up. It's me now. I wonder though, because she's, because um, I agree with you, but I wonder if there's something about, do you remember when you talked about in series two, um, Maddie, the interior designer who comes in with the end table and she's being really warm yes. and, and, and it's so different to Miranda's sort of stiffness. I wonder if there's something mm. about Debbie's openness and her... Um, like bounciness. Her bounciness and her lack of pretension and her lack of self-consciousness and her warmth that maybe does rattle Miranda because she's created such a survivalist mechanism for, mm. um, you know, wariness and cynicism and, um, and quite kind of glacial aloofness. And also like being such a kind of pragmatic and logical and academic and analytical person. 
the idea of being Miranda could be anything that she wants other than a woman like Debbie. So true. Yeah. Yeah. And I guess the thing as well of like if we're living in that sort of pragmatic ice queen person who's always thinking six steps ahead rather than living in the moment, which is her real fatal flaw is that she finds it really difficult to live in a moment. It's that like, okay, I'm in love with the father of my child. But if I, if we fall in love and then we break up, we're fucked. Yeah. You know, this baby is fucked. This is this, this brilliant situation that we've managed to make work despite all the odds will ruin it. And so I do believe that, but I, but I don't quite believe the, I looked up and I was in love with Steve. Oh my God, I'm in love with Steve. Yeah. <laughs> Even though she delivers it very well. She does. She does. And the slow melting of Miranda of Ice Queen Miranda has been happening, as we've said before. It's it's uh, done beautifully and incrementally from scene one of the very first episode, but you really get that kind yeah. of more rapid melting and mellowing and opening in this series, and she she almost is unrecognisable by the end of it. Yeah, yeah, no, if you, if you played a scene from... A Miranda scene from season one versus season six, you would assume that that was an actress playing different characters. Yeah, totally. Because one of them has a shit lid. (laughs) (laughs) Shit lid. Love that. Finally, we have an answer to the question we posed last week. What does Charlotte York do all day? Now, (laughs) Judaism. Thank God. Thank God she's got a thing that fills her days. (laughs) I love how this is played in this episode. It makes me laugh so hard, particularly in that sex scene where she's on top of him and she's like, oh, Harry, is this Jewish thing really that important to you? And he's like, no, no, it's fine or whatever. And then she wakes up with that little face and she's like, oh, I remember, remember last night when you said the Jewish thing wasn't a big deal? And he was like, what? And they have this argument in bed. And then she's like, why is this so important? Why would it be so important to your mother? If she met me, she would love me. And uh, Harry's like, no, Jews don't think that way. <laughs> Which I he delivers it really well. It's really funny. Yeah. And then, and then uh, he says, you know, it was important to my mother. She lost relatives in the Holocaust. And then Charlotte makes the most brilliant face. And she just goes, well, now you've mentioned the Holocaust and I can't say anything. <laughs> it's such a good line, that, isn't it? She's so funny, this series. I think it's a really great storyline, this uh, storyline about conversion. It's such a real issue for so many Jewish people, even Jewish people who are not practising, but who are Jewish by ethnicity and Jewish by culture and Jewish by history and Jewish um, by family. Even if if they're, as I said, if they're not practising, it's so... It's so complicated, you know. I, I, this was something that I would hear when I was like a teenage girl at my school with girls not being allowed to, to date non-Jewish boys. And actually, it is funny that line when Charlotte says, "Well, now I can't mention anything because you brought up the Holocaust." But that, you know, I obviously I'm not Jewish, so I can't speak on behalf of Jewish people. But from all the Jewish friends that I have that I've spoken to about this. Like, that does have to be taken into account, obviously, that mm. this is a group of people that have survived and shared something 
not just in the last century, but for like a, all of history. And that does yeah. impinge on how they choose to have families. And for most of us, you know, finding love is difficult enough. Um, let's move on to Great Expectations, episode two. Oh God, I've just realized this is the episode where Carrie, and it's a very Carrie and Burger centric episode. So it's already has our teeth on edge. And it's the episode where they have bad sex and they continue to have bad sex. And I believe continue to have sex for, have bad sex for the rest of their relationship. Me too. I think it tracks. I don't think it ever gets any better. Or I don't think it ever gets much better. Yeah, totally agree. Oh, let's just, talk, let's just land ourselves in that. Let's just talk about that. <laughs> yeah, I think it's such a good, good, unexpected, but also totally expected plot twist that they are sexually incompatible. I think it's genius. Yeah, so, so good. Especially when like, and like we, we have been a little bit of harsh on the... Um, dialogue between Carrie and Berger but I think it's because we're so scarred from Berger and the people that Berger represents that yeah. we, we every time we see him we're just like ugh um, are you suggesting that we're bringing and projecting all of our own relationship <laughs> relationship shit onto this podcast because I don't know if I agree with that and I think that's quite unprofessional of us if so are you suggesting that this is a, an un this is a this is a biased reading of this show um yeah, we do bring a lot of our fucking baggage about Burger to Burger, but this thing of like this he's their patter is very good. They're very easy together. They love to you can tell in those scenes that they love talking to each other. It feels very believable that they're kind of high on each other's intellect and wit and snappiness. And I think it's so fitting and good that they just have crap sex. Mm. Because so much of like that Burger character and who he is and, and what makes him charming, which is the patter, the references, the quickness, those things are built up by people as defense mechanisms. Totally. And it's really hard to have good sex if you have a defense mechanism. Couldn't agree more. And it's it's like what happens when you present a totally dazzling and shining and amplified version of yourself of course sex is going to be bad because sex is like the removal of all that finery. It's like your barest yes. self and it's like you totally vulnerable. And for people who, as you said, rely on like words and wit, often that is just unfathomably frightening. Yeah. And they're very disconnected from their bodies because yeah. they're so connected to that. And it reminds me as well of, um, there's, I think it's in season one, there's this bit where, Mar where Carrie's freaking out to Miranda about Big. And she says, she's like, she's like, oh, you know, I wish you could see me when I'm with him. I'm so, I'm so fake. I have my little Carrie outfits and my little Carrie poses. And she's kind of spinning out, but you, she's like really being very frank with herself and with Miranda about how fake she's able to be when she's with Big and yeah. how frightening it is to her. And it's like, that's who Burger is when he's with Carrie. It's like he's, yes. you know, he's really God, living on so the bleeding true. edge of like a character he's created. And then when you have to unravel all of that, which you need to do, like that's, I mean, the thing is people have been talking about how to get good sex for, you know, a hundred years and there's been countless articles about it, but the only really way to do it is to live in the moment and be yourself. Yeah. Like, you know, that's, yeah. that's all there is, you know? Um, and if you can't do either of those things, which Burger categorically cannot, of course it's going to be crap. 
Yeah. Oh, it's so crap as well. And they really, they really hang on how crap it is in on the on the shot. You know, the sort of him just sort of nudging on top of her and her going, oh, my hair. <laughs> oh, it's so awful. Have you ever had that? Not bad sex, as in have you ever had yes. that kind of cerebral, <laughs> like amazing connection with someone and then it be so, so physically incompatible? Yes, I have had that. Um, oh, it's it's like, I, he, I mean, he's never going to listen to this, but let's let's just go for it anyway. I ha- um, a few years ago, many years ago at this point, um, I had this little workplace flirtation with this really lovely guy who was gorgeous. And we had such a cute workplace flirt dynamic. And, you know, he would like come into my office and like bring me little presents during the day. And like we had this, gorgeous first kiss and first date and um really really romantic and I really want to share the details but <laughs> unfortunately the, the job was so specific that he would definitely be able to yeah, <laughs> identify yeah. himself keep it vague <laughs> keep it vague Gar. um and then you know we we got down to it and it was just really it was I mean honestly it was very like this episode it was yeah. very rigid and um did you hear a bus? Did you hear a bus go past and people come <laughs> off and the doors close? I was living in an elephant and castle, so <laughs> probably. But I'm talking too much about myself and not enough about this wonderful episode, which sees the introduction of both Smith Jared and one of the best sort of, you know, film within a film, TV within a TV incidents ever, which is Jules and Mimi. I am obsessed with, you know, you had Miranda in the natural world. Yes. My one that I'm obsessed with is Miranda's relationship with media. Go on. Because I think it's so interesting that that character who is so intellectual and so analytical and so serious in her in her day-to-day work life has this absolute need and obsession for trash, cultural trash. Yes, you're so right. I've never thought of it before. But yes, specifically her and no other character. Yes. She loves um, Tattletailed. She loves Gossip Magazines. She loves TiVo. She loves Jules and Mimi. At one point as a cutaway in this in this series, they show Miranda watching Changing Rooms on TiVo. <laughs> so great. The 90s English home makeover programme. <laughs> So weird. You know when you meet really, really academic people who only love, like, potty humour? Yes, yes, yes. Or women with, like, two PhDs who only watch Disney movies. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. If you want to find someone who, like, loves shit and fart and arse jokes, look for a Don at Oxford. It always surprises me how much really like hyper academic people just get a real kick out of like a smelly fart joke. And I think it's because they just need like a holiday from their thoughts. And I think that that's so so believable with Miranda that she's just someone who I think she would just like exclusively watch Married at First Sight Australia or Love Island or, you know. All those programs. Oh, you're so you're so right. It's I've never thought about it before, but it's such a brilliant character detail because she's the only person on the show who has a really hard job. Yeah, <laughs> you know what I mean. Yeah, yeah. 
Like she comes home every day. Like there's one point in the series where she talks about how she's um needs to cut her work week down to a 60 hour a week. She has to cut it down to 60 hours a week. And it's, in- it's incredible. It's insane the, how much that woman works. And like the fact, of course she comes home and just fucking veggies in front of changing rooms. Like it's the only thing that makes sense. Do you know what? I actually really like, I've really been keeping track of it on this rewatch of all of these series. More than any other character, they show Miranda at home eating takeaway and watching films like through the week yeah. and sometimes on a Saturday night or a Friday night more than any other character. And I'm just so pleased that they included that detail that's like would be so irrelevant to me as a young girl watching it, but like means yeah. so much to me now that they're being realistic about the fact that you cannot have it all. And if you have a career like Miranda's, she would not be able to be going out as much as someone like Carrie. Yeah, yeah, no, you're totally right. I'm, I am glad they included it without putting too much of a hat on it either do you know they they don't talk there's no words where it's like you know i can't come out on a wednesday carrie i have work in the morning there's very little of that it's just sort of speaks for itself and it like it trusts the audience to just sort of get that these people are in different places even though they're best friends yeah so what do you think jules and mimi is all about i've really tried to think about like what's what is that so I'm I I don't know this for a certain, but I feel like it, you know it's pretty evident that like TiVo is a major sponsor of this show. It was a huge thing at the time. I feel like they were given this huge, huge payout for TiVo, and they had to use it somehow. Yeah. And rather than, and I imagine what like probably they were supposed to do was you know have a like I don't know build a very big storyline around it I don't I don't know how exactly and I think they just came to like what if we just build a whole tv show that Miranda watches because the thing is it is the most camp yeah product placement I've ever seen in a show and the thing the thing about campness that makes that makes it camp and not just bad is that it's something that is pushed to such an extreme it comes back around again and seems very natural yeah <laughs> Do you know what I mean yeah which is but if if you look at that scene where like her and Carrie are eating pizza after they go to Raw and um, and it's just Miranda whittering on about TiVo for ages <laughs> and Carrie, <laughs> Carrie being like, oh, cool. And then what do you do? <laughs> like, it's so obviously like this commercial branding, but I just don't care because they really go for it. And there's this brilliant line that, that Miranda says. It's about this beautiful black man from Brickton and a white woman from Hampstead Heath. I'm not sure what that means exactly, but there's a great divide. <laughs> and that's how she says it. There's a great divide. Do you think that there might be some sort of crass foreshadowing of her and Robert in the fact that the male lead is a beautiful black man and I think that Jules has red hair? Yeah, she's definitely like a strawberry blonde situation. That can't be it, can it? I don't know. I do think that when it comes back later, when um, she, I think she's home with chicken pox or something and Miranda turns it on and they're having sex. Oh, it's and so funny. Robert's just sitting there. I do think it's kind of, it is crass, but it is sort of worth it for that awkward payoff. Yeah, yeah. And also, I do think it's believable that as a single working mother in the first year of having a newborn, that you would get totally hooked on a show like that. The fact that they shot those scenes makes I know. me so happy. <laughs> it makes me so happy. There's nothing I love more than art within art. And you and I have yeah. spoken a lot about the fact that I really do think that art within art 
ha- can't feel surfacy and token. There ha- I yeah. bet. I bet they did like. I bet somewhere there's a document, like a three-page document about like like a fake treatment for Jules and Mimi. Oh, I know that there is. So good. And the the only bit that we actually see of it is that like Mimi going around to Jules' flat because the heating is broken and his top is off. Oh yeah, because what's that other thing Miranda says? <gasps> he rents a flat above her above her hat shop. Hat shop in this really odd English <laughs> accent. <laughs> I find it so funny. It wrecks me. <laughs> I also, Magda really comes into her own this series. And she has always been this like slight puck figure between Steve mm-hmm. and Miranda. You almost feel like Miranda is, Magda is Miranda's replacement mother. And mm. that she, Magda knows before Miranda does that she's in love with Steve and they're going to end up together. So there are all these like really sweet moments, not just in this series, but in the past series as well, where she's like clocking things knowingly, literally like a little Shakespearean imp, you know, just kind of (laughs) scuttling through the back of stage and maybe narrating something to the audience. But like, she's just like, she's clocking these small moments and she's like uh, helping Miranda sometimes with like hiding from Debbie or... She's, yes. Or she's giving them space. Or she's um, and there's my one of my favorite Magda lines is uh, in this episode when she she kind of nervously comes over to Miranda and gingerly says, "I did something bad," and she's <laughs> deleted all of Jules and Mimi. <laughs> she sat on the remote and deleted it. And, oh, and Miranda so says, "No, no, 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 no," and she just says, "Yes." <laughs> She's so flummoxed so at her good. own actions. Yes. Oh, so good. And uh, of course, we have Smith in this episode as well. My dream man. He's looking just so beautiful. My dream man. If I, other than the piss politician, if I had to choose one man from Sex City, it would be Smith Jarrett. He never did anything for me when I was younger. Um, and now I'm older than him. So maybe that's the key to fancying Smith Jarrett. Maybe you have to be older than him and maybe you have to sort of want to look after him. As I was watching the first episode of this series where it's um, Samantha and the um, financial guy. Chip Kilkenny! Chip Kilkenny! Which also fucking annoys me because it's like her, you know, in the meatpacking district where she's lived for all of seven months or something. And she's and there's a pottery barn coming in. And it's like, oh, the last thing we need is gentrification in our gay neighborhood. It's like, Samantha, you are the gentrification. She doesn't get it, you, does she? She does not get does it. Does not get it. And the show has no interest in her getting it. No. Um, and then Chip Kilkenny comes in and then, you know, she has sex with him and he gives her insider trading tips, blah, blah, blah. But I remember watching that episode, not realizing that Smith was coming in the next episode mm. and thinking like, I literally had that long lip flapping exhale where it's like, pff, like... This is getting pointless. Like the yeah. increasing yeah. pointlessness of Samantha's sex life, particularly when at this point we're so far into the show and we've seen so many other shades of her character. It feels like, God, you're just tacking on another, like quite dull, at this point, not very shocking, not very titillating, not erotic thing of her fucking another person we're never going to see again. 
it, fe it felt really tiring. And then to have this next episode where it's set up exactly like that. It's set up like it's going to be another Samantha caper. And then against the odds, we have this person who just stays and stays and stays and becomes this like big, you know, figure in the hearts of all the fans, you know? It's such a fake out to the fans, really. It's like they, we, the show has trained us to have a certain kind of response to these characters. And then it sort of like flipped the script on us, which I think is very clever. I agree. And I think that there's something really interesting in that sense of ennui that you start to get in the last series with Samantha. Um, but you articulate it very well when you're saying that she has her real is that all there is moment. And she says it like a couple of times last series of like, I'm kind of done with New York. I'm done with, the, you know, I'm done with the men. Yeah. And, and the series before you have her like forgetting that she's fucked people because she's <laughs> fucked so many. And it does feel like it's just maybe getting boring for her or wearing thin. And I'm going to be very cautious and careful with how I say this and I don't I want to make it clear that this is not my opinion I just do think it's an interesting school of thought someone I know said to me once when you get into your 40s you're probably at the peak of your career or, or hitting the peak of your career or really succeeding in your career you would hope if you've been building it from your 20s you probably have traveled to lots of the places you want to travel you probably have had lots of interesting sexual experiences or romantic experiences you've probably kind of made your most of your kind of core friends for life it does it does beg more of a question to childless people in their 40s I think of like how do you make things feel new again how do you make things how do you feel like you're entering a new chapter when you don't have um this new narrative and these new characters like thrust upon you for the next 18 years. And I think that there's no coincidence that the man who does that, the man who's like finally makes her like breathes new life into her routines and into the city that she's lived in for all of her adult life and into her career as well, is someone who's younger and he's spring-like. You know, he's so, he looks like a little baby chick when he does, when she has that first, when she has that first connective moment with him, it's him doing, doing that monologue in his play where he's talking about grass, you know, like wet grass. And the last scene that you see of them is them fucking with like beautiful bulbs <gasps> springing of flowers next to them. So there's something about like the youth and freshness of him that I think is basically like, the writer saying to the audience, like, you can have this sense of blossoming vitality and newness in your life at any age if you don't have children. Oh, mate. <laughs> that was very good. You blindsided me with that one. Someone's been working on their own, Samantha, in the natural world. I see it. <laughs> You're so right. He does look like a little baby chick. Oh, I love him even more now. <laughs> yeah. And he's so green as a person. He's so, he makes her see things differently because he's got such a like fresh, yeah. clean, new perspective yeah. on things. And he's like, he's this great, and you do meet these people, these people who are this mixture of um, innocent and hopeful and wide open, but they're also... They're not naive and they're not going to be, they have a lot of self-love and they're not going to be blindsided or manipulated or taken in by things. 
and to and to make that mistake about them is um is common but won't pay off you know yeah yeah Oh, I love him. The other thing I I love about this episode, because we should move on, is when Charlotte goes to the temple and there's a janitor who's cleaning the the doors of the temple. She's holding her kosher wine and she just goes, Shalom. (laughs) And there's something about the way she delivers it is so funny. (laughs) Shalom. And he looks at her with disgust. (laughs) So funny. Love it. Yeah. This next one, uh, number three, The Perfect Present. I love the cameo in this from Jennifer Coolidge's Purse Party. I totally can see myself do doing this. Heart, heartbreak leading to kind of marabou and sequins and uh, snakeskin is very real to me. <laughs> Look, little shoes. Turns out I'm the next Fendi. It's, oh god, that's a very good impression, Caroline. Not gonna lie, know a lot of gay guys. I've been doing impressions of Jennifer Coolidge for a long time. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> what do you think of um, Big and Carrie's phone sex? I think it's hot. I think it's hot as fuck. It's very, very hot. It's really like well played. It's very gradual. Very into it. When he's talking about like coming into her closet and you're wearing just your heels. And like came up behind you and then she just like sits bolt upright and like, oh God, who wouldn't sit bolt upright for that, you know? I also love what a phone sex pillow queen she is. She just fucking <laughs> stays completely mute. <laughs> like I'd love to do that. I'd love to just Yeah. Like tell me about all the times I've been mute. hot. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And have an ex-boyfriend <laughs> ring me in t- and tell me of all the times he really, really wants to fuck me. Oh, so good. So good. And I love how, um, I do kind of love how, you know, she is having this relationship with Berger and, um, and she's kind of like, yeah, you know, it's not serious. I'm allowed to do this kind of thing. It's I kind of love the, the lack of neuroses around that. Yeah. And I also love that. I love that Pig takes the second call from her in his hot tub in Napa Valley with such a bad green screen behind him. Oh my God, I'm glad that we both saw this. The worst green screen ever. So clearly on a sound stage. It's all so on the nose of him like holding this big balloon wine glass of red (laughs) wine being like, oh, here I am in California (laughs) on my vineyard. You'll have to speak up. I'm on California time. Um, but I love that um, you can sense when she says to him, it just got serious. Mm-hmm. He says something quite curt, doesn't he? He says, okay, kid, well, keep well or whatever. Yeah. And it's the first time maybe ever in their relationship that you see him look slightly concerned that he's lost her. Yeah. And I did wonder if this is like the first seed that's planted in this series of him realizing that you're the one, Carrie. Yet again, we're gonna we're gonna talk about the the talents of Chris Knopf. It's it happens mostly on his face and mostly with tone. Yeah, it's just yeah. I think he just says oh, okay, kid, and that's it. But it like in those like five seconds, his face really goes on a journey. Yeah. Oh, another thing that happens in this episode that really I think I'm gonna come back to this a lot, but 
the way that the writers write the quote-unquote new man in this series, mm. Mm. Harry, Berger, Smith, very, very... Um, like they really belong to a new school of masculinity in the way that Trey and Aiden felt very old school and Big feels very old school in that they're people who like will accept help from the women they're with. They're people who can, you know, in in terms of Harry and Smith anyway, people who can sort of have a lot of leeway for the bullshit from the women they love, but they also have a tremendous amount of self-respect and self-love. And there's this bit where Samantha gives Smith $300 because she got him fired from her catering job by fucking him at the purse party. (laughs) And um, (laughs) and, and he he just puts on his like olive green fucking vest. It's so hot. And then he just says, lady, you are out of your fucking mind. And he throws the money back at her and he walks I out. Found that, I found that really hot this time as well. Yeah. It is about self-respect, isn't it? Yeah. It is about self-respect and self-love. And it's about showing the women in their life the same amount of love and respect that they show themselves. Yes. Yes, it's very that, yeah. And also, it's no, it's no coincidence that Smith is like, highly therapized yes yeah from the sounds of things and like is looking at his shit and sorting out his shit he's what 27 28 he's already aware of the fact that he Mm. has issues with alcohol he's in a 12-step program when you compare it with the likes of like that old manhattan alpha male like trey or big that's about men who will not examine the, the stuff that they're going through and they don't know how to express themselves yes yes it's so true and it's it's really it's the first time that we're given any um, indication in the series that like oh this person is a person. There's also that thing in this about um, Burger's ex and the answering machine and the double finger and all this. What did you think about that? Didn't believe it. it I didn't believe it. Not that I didn't believe the writers, but that I didn't believe Burger. She cheated on me. She broke my heart. Yeah, I didn't believe it. Did she cheat on you? Because it seemed like you went on a full fucking date with Carrie Bradshaw while she was still your girlfriend. So I would re-examine that, sir. I don't think she cheated on him at all. Really? No. It was totally made up. Yeah. So the the, the version I was going to suggest was that like they were having trouble. He was kind of heating up Hobbs. And uh, they were, you know, probably in one of those relationships where they hadn't even like talked in five days, but they somehow lived together or whatever. And then she comes home one day and she's like, look, I'm sorry, I slept with somebody else. And then that became the, oh, Lauren's the asshole, you know, despite the fact they're both were in this unhealthy thing. I'm on Lauren's side regardless. Yeah, no, you're right. That's more believable. Um, While we're shit talking burger. Mm -hmm. What do you think of his flat? Um, Of course, there's an exposed brick wall. Yeah. That just screams of Trostafarian of a rubber factory Fucking to me. Grandpa Rub Rub. Yeah, Grandpa Rub Rub. Um, I also <laughs> wondered. This might be this might be be me getting myself a little bit too whipped up about Berker, but I wondered if Pandora's hurricane was because he had like a godmother who worked at HarperCollins. Oh, do you think? I think maybe. Like a New York society. Like, I think, I basically think Burger's in a dynasty. The fact that he has this like, like, okay, it's quite a small apartment, but it's clearly very well upholstered. And in this sort of thing of like, 
it's sort of the fantasy like Barbie dreamhouse version of what a male writer would live in. Yeah, yeah. Which is like, I don't know, I find it very suspect. I hate it all. That annoying pin board of all the playing cards. The playing cards he finds. He wants to get a full deck. Have a day off, mate. Have a day off, mate. <laughs> um, then we go on to, oh, we're, get, we're, we're rocking up to the scrunchie. Pick a little, talk a little. The famous scrunchie episode. What do you make of the scrunchie? What do I make of scrunchies, period? Or what do I make of scrunchies What do you make of, of scrunchies being the point of tension between Carrie and Berger in this episode? Because this is the first and only time you will hear me say this. I slightly am on Berger's side. Yes, I agree. To a to an extent. Because yeah. I, we, both of us have written books. Both of us have had that thing where our friends or loved ones kind of... It's this thing that happens where... Your friend has done a thing and like like written a book or been in a play or whatever. And you think that because the thing they've done is so great and so obviously great, that they must be sick of hearing how good it is. Yeah. And so to reinforce the idea that you two are close and you know, you know them in a different way, you immediately go to being a bit piss takey and a bit like, yeah. what were you thinking there, mate? I've yeah. had happened to me. I'm sure you have too. Yeah. And what the reality is, is when you're in that position, when you are the other person in that conversation, is like, you often feel extremely vulnerable about your book being out there. You are extremely aware of the ways in which both the art has flaws and the way that it's been received has been disappointing for whatever reason, or the sales haven't been good, or whatever. And And then to have somebody who you trust and love just like really flippantly point out something they thought was stupid makes you feel like a fucking idiot and it does make you recoil. However, he takes it too far. He takes it way too far and there's obviously so much like weird gendered emasculation stuff bubbling underneath um, that, you know, he just uses this one comment as a, as a vehicle for, which has nothing to do with Carrie. That's all his own stuff mm-hmm. he has to sort out. But I too, oh my God, I remember with my first book, I gave one of the first proofs that I gave to a friend is is one of my best friends in the whole world. And she, I I value her opinion on my writing probably higher than any other human on the planet. And she's such a good writer herself and she's just got impeccable taste. And she read the book and uh, we met up shortly after she read it. And I said, oh, what do you think? And she just said, I love it. It's brilliant. You're a genius. You don't know how to use semicolons. Mm, and, that would really get to me. And this is totally like she had no idea why that would... Because she could say that to me about an article that I'd written or about any other piece of work and I would have found it hilarious. Mm. But it bothered me so deeply. And I remember getting drunk that night and I just kept coming over to being like, you hate my book. <laughs> She was like, I just said that I loved it and it's brilliant and it made me laugh and cry and you're a genius. I was like, just say it, you hate my book. And I took it really badly. It's such a complicated thing, but I think you can't... The thing is, Carrie Bradshaw is a published author, so she should know how important language is around that stuff. 
I can forgive anyone else for just being like, for just missing the mark a bit and not knowing all those kind of complexities of why you have to use language very carefully in that first, in the first line of feedback. Yes, yes, no, I agree. But I think there's also this thing at play. And if like I were to walk around in Burger's head for a while, even though I, I would not enjoy that activity, that this thing of like, you know, he probably like, We've seen Hurricane Pandora. It looks like a big book. Like that looks like 350, 400 pages of him trying to be the next Jonathan Franzen. And like, you know, let's say regardless of the godmother at HarperCollins and grandma Rub Rub, he probably worked on it for a few years. Pretty hard, let's say. Yeah, we'll we'll give him that. Yeah. We'll give him that. He probably worked hard on it. But then to have your famous columnist girlfriend who kind of stumbled her way into a book deal by collecting her columns sort of be a bit like sassy with you I can see how it would rile you up yeah so we'll give him that that is the that is the first and only amount of slack we will cut him I know I think she just misjudges it and then it's just it's so well done the rest of that episode how he is so resentful and angry and hurt about it but he kind of puts her through hell rather than you know expressing a emotional thought in a clear and kind way and I think you know that awful moment where my stomach just turns where they have the kind of chat the little mini debate about the scrunchie and then she says what she should have said initially which is can I read you all my favourite bits? Which is what you did to me after you read Ghosts and what I did mm-hmm. with Scenes of Graphic Nature and is is what you should always do, I think, particularly as a friend of or, or you know, partner of that person. And he just says, no, I'm done talking about the book. And it's horrible. It just feels so sour, yeah. doesn't it? You really feel it in the pit of your stomach. Oh, you really... I, yeah, I do feel for him in that moment. However, that sympathy vanishes the moment he says, oh yeah, nice hat. I hate him. Hate him. Hate him and for then, saying and then that. The way she just like puts her head on her little, her hand on her fascinator on her head and she just goes, it's fabulous. And then she just like turns away and runs. And she takes the little hat off. I know, I really feel for her. <laughs> I just, and also it feels like it's just this thing that like no one's told her like Carrie doesn't I don't think Carrie knows that people think she looks a bit mad <laughs> do you know, know what I mean and like people have thought it the t- like everyone's thought it and everyone's written about it other than Mrs. Cohen of that's a crazy outfit fame I feel like she kind of like lives in such a fashion bubble that maybe she doesn't realize like yeah it's like a horrible like um just moment of self-consciousness that makes her look like a little girl. It really, oh, it really does. It It's really like a little girl. You're so right. And like, and it's also this thing of like, what's so great about Carrie Bradshaw is that she doesn't dress for men. You yeah. know, she dresses for, she's, she's, it's, it's eclectic. It's for people who know about fashion. It's for the appreciation of other women. It's so other women can say to her in toilets, oh, I love this. It's not yeah. so men. Like, she does dress sexy sometimes, but, like, the sort of eclecticism is not for them. And I do sort of love women who are really into fashion and they don't really care what men think about it. And to see that being punctured is just very, it's very hard. (laughs) And the other thing that happens in this episode that breaks my heart is Charlotte having her first Friday night dinner 
with Harry and she's done the whole thing. She's made brisket, she's made challah bread and he's sort of not really into it, not paying attention. And it, it goes into this fight where she just kind of blurts out, set the date, set the date. I gave up Christ for you, set the date. And she's, she can't believe that she's gone through this conversion of faith and of, you know, of she's converted her kitchen for him, you know, and, and, and yeah. that he still hasn't um, proposed marriage to her. And, and she's beginning to feel ridiculous about it. And she it really gets to this like very wounded part of her and she has this really ugly behavior. And what she comes out with, and it's so horrible, it's, do you know how lucky you are to have me? Do you know what we look like and what people say when they see us together? And then it's like the the incredible self-love of Harry Goldenblatt, who's taken so much shit from this woman who's so insecure for so many episodes. And he just he just turns, he just like the lights, the lights go out. He's like, Yeah, I know what people think. I just never thought you would be one of them. And that's it for him. And he's out of there. Yeah. I'm like, I just love seeing that. Me too. And you almost can't believe that later in that episode, the VO says. Harry had his things picked up, collected from Charlotte's flat that afternoon. So it's like, that's yeah. the lawyer in him. That's his bottom line. Like, no further no further questions, no further negotiation. That's it. Yeah. Ooh, I love to see it. I love to see it. Love to see these unneurotic, red-blooded men. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's so strange because, yeah, Harry and Smith are really... You know they're so they're so different on paper, but that that sort of behavior is so consistent throughout the season of these people who are so willing to oblige in things, but they have this this limit and they they have these boundaries. And it reminds me of something that you wrote about in your column recently. I do read your column, um, which a quote from Brene Brown that I remember seizing on as well, where she talks about you know the people the people who are happiest in this world are the ones with really good boundaries. Yeah. What was the quote again? You had it better than I did. She said it was a study that she often references that where they studied the most um, people with extraordinarily high empathy levels. So people like monks was an example. And what they found is the people who had the energy to expend authentic compassion in a really meaningful way in people's lives. The reason that they they had that resource is that they had very good boundaries. So they weren't... Uh, bending themselves out of shape to please others or giving uh, when they shouldn't be giving or letting themselves be taken advantage of because they needed to reserve this really concentrated uh, patience and love and and empathy for, for the people who need it most. It's a really good lesson, evidenced by Harry and Smith, the two, <laughs> the two best men ever written on this show. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. 
For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. So the next episode is Lights, Camera, Relationship. The truly bum-out storyline of this episode is Jack Berger being dropped by his publisher and keeping it a secret from Carrie and him having an absolute fucking meltdown about it, particularly uh, in contrast to Carrie's success as she gets an advance from France um, <laughs> and culminating in him trying to reassert his power and masculinity in the relationship by... Uh, riding on a motorbike with her on it really really fast which is it's all so depressing and then the joyful part of this episode is basically samantha taking on smith jared as a client smith jared i changed his name (laughs) so good so good i love how she just does it because she's kind of bored and she doesn't want to go to brooklyn or whatever it's so good also one of my favorite samantha lines of all time after she sees him full frontal naked in his play is when she takes him home i'm not usually a fan of the theater but get your cock out (laughs) what does it mean don't know just love it it's so weird where it's just like I'm not usually a fan of the theatre. And then you would imagine she'd make some kind of like, you know, but now I'm a cat on a hot tin roof or something. Or like some sort of reference to the theatre. But then she says, I'm not usually a fan of the theatre. Get your cock out. (laughs) So weird. I adore it. I adore it too. It's like... It's so good as well for that character who's been making these like weird dodgy puns for six seasons, and then for her to just like be so into someone that she can't even finish the she pun. can't pun. She's run out of road. She's <laughs> she's got to the she's got to the pun U turn of life. <laughs> it's, so good. it's so stupid. <laughs> So funny. Smith Smith Jared's play. What do you th- what do you think of it? Get your cock out. Well, you know, it's very a play, as we can safely say. It's the first actual play in this play-filled show. Um uh do you, I don't know, do you think it's good? Do you think it's just him standing naked for the whole thing? Uh yeah. That's what I always get a trip up on. He's naked for the whole thing. Yeah, he's naked for the whole thing, but do you remember this was the time? Do you remember Dan- Daniel Radcliffe was in that play where he in was... Equus? Oh my yeah. god! Yes, there was definitely like a period in the noughties where like someone having the todger out <laughs> made it really, really the talk of the town. Because Between let's face todger it, todger and shit lid, you're like cockney. 
<laughs> energies high this but season, and I love let's it. Let's face it, theatre is shit and boring. So you you do need you do need a bear todger sometimes. <laughs> it is shit and boring, and I'm glad Samantha knows that. And the. <laughs> And, and they all think it's shit and boring because there's this bit where she's like, oh, I have to go to the theatre on Friday night. And Carrie's like, oh, are they making that mandatory now? <laughs> it's like, <laughs> nobody wants to go to a play. And I think it's really sweet that she makes it this kind of big, she does like the full Samantha Jones treatment on him without really changing him. And she does this big kind of glamorous red carpet thing and she injects all this interest into the play and that obviously really changes his changes the trajectory of his career and I do think I do think that when they're all staring at him doing that beautiful monologue all her best friends are staring at him Mm. do you know what I think they're thinking about the fire pit they're thinking about the fire pit they're thinking about (laughs) the Provencal fire pit yeah if I took Smith Jared to Mm. the fire pit do you think him and Gav would have some stuff to talk about yeah, I think so. It's not ideal, is it? It's it's not. It's, it wouldn't be the number one. It's not my first choice. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Should we get Gavin on? <laughs> I, I'll call him in. Um, I do see a world where, like, um, yeah, where Gavin could really embrace Smith because there's a real performer aspect in Gav that I think Smith would sort of um, <laughs> would would nurture, and I think Gavin would volunteer to do the graphic design for his plays. Yeah, I think he would. Good, I'm glad we settled on that. Good. Episode over. And this has been Sentimental in the City. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I I love as well, so um, to track this sort of burger storyline that happens here, we get this uh, great return moment from Amy Sedaris, who's been made redundant, coming out like with a bottle of gin out of a corner shop. And she just does a great performance. She's like, oh my God, Burger, he's so fucking talented. Oh, they dropped his option. Cute kid. I love cute kid. Cute kid. Because she's so like, she's just been made redundant and she's just like going home to make herself a welfare martini. I just love like, (laughs) there's something about the ambition and the ruthlessness of that kind of like publishing media woman that it's like, Oh, well, you get on the treadmill, you get off, you get back on. Like, it feels so real to me, that kind of, like, cutthroatness. I love her. I, I love her so much. I'm so glad they brought her back for that. Yeah. Um, And then, of course, she gets her advance from France, which uh, tracks something that I think is very powerful in Sex and the City. And I think the writer, Daniel Lavery, pointed it out first, which is that... The, the central war in Sex and the City is between Carrie and France. Oh, yeah, yeah. You've said this before. Yeah, it's true. It's not my idea. It's very much Daniel Lavery's, but I do believe in it, of this thing of um, the... It begins, like, losing big to France and then losing him again and then him meeting someone in France and then she gets this... 25 grand from France. It's like it's France saying sorry for Natasha. Yeah. And also I wonder if France took big because Carrie was so ungrateful for France giving her that architect who gave her a grand after they <laughs> fucked. France giveth and she taketh. She does she doeth. <laughs> 
Um, and then like, oh, okay. Do you hate because I don't like it? Um, Burger and Carrie going to Prada and it being like very framed, like it's meeting Carrie's parents. Like it's like this is the most important place in the world to her. Yeah, I don't like it. Don't like it. I do like the Prada man though. Yeah, he's very cute. And I do like the Prada dress. Yes. And the thing about the Prada dress and the attendant handbag and her lovely long side ponytail that I think we all think that a side ponytail will look that way on us. And it never does. Never does. Um, never does. You always look like you're like in a Tiffany video. It's, they're bad. <laughs> I've tried to make them work so many times. I can't make it work. Um, but when I was young and that scene of her coming out of her flat and she looks gorgeous and he's there in the motorbike and she's being, you know... Not to be a total girl about it. Um, but I thought when I was a teenager, I was like, oh my God, I can't believe she doesn't think this guy on the motorbike is hot. I can't believe she doesn't want to have fun on the motorbike. And now when I watch that today, I'm like, that enrages me so much. Yeah, yeah. That she has to... And this, it goes back to what we said at the very top of the episode, which is... You know, when you're in those relationships and you don't know what's the appropriate amount of... Totally. Like, compromise and what is madness. Yeah. And the idea that she has to get on a motorbike with that hair in that dress to go to Brooklyn so he can feel like a man. And she says to him, I'm not going to die on the back of a motorbike so you can feel like a man. And then he says, I didn't think I was that kind of man, but I suppose I am. Or he says something along those lines. And then he does, I think, the most unfit thing that a man can ever do. He kicks a wall. Oh, my God. When they do that. I hate when they do. If any man is listening now, I want you to know that in front of a lover, girlfriend or wife, if you kick an inanimate object or punch an inanimate object in an argument, you take away 5% of your shag ability and how yeah. lovable you are that is like, it cannot be replaced. It's, it's, it's removed forever. Yeah, yeah. I remember years ago, me and Gav got into an argument and he like punched a wall or something. And I was, I looked at it, I was so disgusted. And I just so, said, yeah, I just said, oh, are you going to hit me now? And I used that voice. <laughs> I was so. <laughs> it's, I went out with a wall puncher once and he, he, the worst one that he did is we had a big argument on a street in Battersea one night and I had my. Oh, our one was in a street in Waterloo by the vaults. Oh, yeah. I've had some yeah. great arguments with boyfriends in the vaults. <laughs> <laughs> There's something about that place. Something <laughs> about that place. <laughs> I actually have. That's so funny. Um, yeah, and he he my, had a leather handbag that was on the floor that I'd put down to have this argument. And he kicked it. He punched a wall and then he kicked the leather handbag down the road like it was a football. <gasps> And I remember looking at him being like, I don't think I will ever really be able to fancy you again. Like beyond beyond like the fact that to put joking aside, it can be really scary when a bloke does that. It's also just like so bratty. It's yeah, that's so the main thing. childish. And it's like, yeah, as I said, the minute that I see a man do that, it's kind of like, 
there's no like you can't you we've lost something here of my attraction for you that we can't get back (laughs) yeah I know and I think the thing is I think when they're doing it and to a certain extent I do sort of sympathize because testosterone is real and I do understand this thing of like you have this sort of rage that's bubbling up and you've not been coached or socialized to use your words to do things and it just kind of comes out and you feel like you need to do this physical expression and I think when they do it somewhere in their head they think they're being like Clint Eastwood or James Dean and they just look like a five-year-old they look like a toddler yeah it looks awful so unsexy and I do sympathize with everything you just said about it's completely on point of like you know when a man uses his body in that physical way when you're in an argument and that that element of like you know it being scary and and all that but I've almost never had that reaction I've just been like you're a baby (laughs) every time you're a stupid baby yeah and it's also it's just like it's so I bet that they put that specific action in the scene I bet they wrote that into the action because it's such a burger thing to do I would not be surprised if 7 to 10 men around Manhattan around this time launched lawsuits because they thought that they were being parodied by the Sex and the City writers yeah I bet he's like just a combination of all these boyfriends because he just feels so so real we then head into episode 6 which is a hop skip and a week which is the last episode that you see of Berger and Carrie together. It is the big unraveling episode. It's also all done in this framework of uh, being put on trial and having to prove yourself. And that's the big theme. And uh, the framework is Carrie is called to jury duty. Um, And as I said in the series four discussion, I really like when they bring in these kind of day-to-day boring incidentals of how life goes and these kind of obligations. I really Mm. enjoy that she has to sit through jury duty and you never find out what it's about or what takes place. You just see her looking very, very bored for a week. Yeah, yeah. I like that as well. I I like the sort of like fabric of reality stuff when it just nudges against Sex and the City. It's very fun. Yeah. And uh, that thing, the thing of the Hollywood kiss, I find so nauseating and so real. Mm. Not that I've ever had like a coping mechanism for, you know, arguments with boyfriends, but I can just see it. And I love that Miranda calls her out on it and says, do you really need a bit? Yeah. yeah. Because I think we forget as well, like this is a new relationship. Like it feels like so, like it's such a drag at this point. And they really do like double down on the dragginess in this episode. Like, the argument that happens in the restaurant in front of Charlotte because Berger thinks that Charlotte and Carrie are being too mean on men and then Berger has a go at her for saying she doesn't want parsley on the food and she's being fussy. Mm. And and then there's this really kind of spiky chat in the cab and he just passive-aggressively says, there's going to be two stops, we're not going to stay over tonight. It's like, it's so much work for a relationship that's meant to be like, still in the fun burgeoning stage yeah do you think there's a world in which we're too hard on burger and the only reason that this isn't working out is because he just got out of a relationship and he wasn't ready for any of this 100 percent. and actually i had such a light bulb moment after a year of dating when i was 30 as i said having had a break where 
I'd been with like three men, I dated three men and it had all ended in exactly the same way um, and not on my terms. And I remember speaking to a friend and she said, are any of them out of a relationship within the last year? And I realised that all three of them had come out of huge marriages or relationships within six months of being with me. And I'd never, ever, like, I I hadn't really joined the dots. And now I just avoid, I avoid men like that, like the plague, because I just, I basically think men are incapable, basically incapable of being single. I think women are really good at being single. I think women are weirdly much better at promiscuity than than men are in terms of being Mm. kind of transactional about it. I think uh, men basically have to have some sort of intimate relationship in their life at all times. Um, And I think that Berger really should have just had like a year fucking around, but obviously he was too insecure to do that. So true. And when I think of so many of my male friends who are single and... uh... And and the way they'll talk to me about their single lives, they'll be like, oh, yeah, I'm dating around, I'm seeing lots of people, I'm shagging, I'm doing whatever. And I'm like, cool, like, so what did you do with so-and-so the other night? He's like, oh, I went around to hers and she made me a lasagna and we watched yeah. last season too. It's like, well, yeah, mm, it sounds like, you know, it does, that thing of these people who sort of have these sort of fake, um, hermetically sealed sort of girlfriendums yeah. I'm not going to say relationships. I'm going to say girlfriendoms. Yeah, because they um, never use the explicit nomenclature. Yeah, yeah. And they're like, yeah, we just we just hang out. You know, we, we smoke joints. I spend all the next day in her house. Then I helped her get ready for her interview. It's like, yeah. 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 <laughs> like, come on, man. Like, this I know. ain't cool. <laughs> but I feel like, like it's the greatest freedom and it unlocks so many problems for you when you realize that because i feel like the lie we're all t- we're all told is that women are obsessed with relationships and men are obsessed with being single but i just mm. don't think that's true and I, I i really do think a lot of it is that women particularly women in their 30s can really be properly single and they can enjoy the precariousness of dating and promiscuity or they can just be like celibate and on their own because mm. they have all this intimacy and love most of the time and comfort and security in their female friendships, which like, bless them, most blokes don't have. So if they're not going to get yeah. that from their friendships, then they need to get it from some like poor fucking girl that they met on Hinge who they're going to dump after two months because yeah. they can't yeah. just shag her. They need some sort of emotional life. Yeah. And like, the thing about the most of male friendships I know that they, and I, I've written about this recently of like, men don't like, I could say to you in, in a non-pandemic time, you know, can I come round on Tuesday and can we just watch, you know, Sex and the City, the movie? Mm-hmm. And like, can we get into our pyjamas and can we just get Chinese and just have a nice soft time? And mm-hmm. you would like, cool, great. You know, I totally understand the emotional cues of this evening. Let's yeah. be very soft with each other. Guys don't do that. No. At the very least, they watch football together and they get like drunk on eight beers in the living room and then just get kind of sleepy and they might <laughs> they might just like fall asleep on the same couch, but it's not intentional. <laughs> not like when we do it. <laughs> no, I feel, and also like, I really do want to make it known and we've said it before on this podcast, like it is an emotional pay gap. I really do feel for men and it does like, go some way to explaining why I think so many of them treat women the way that they do. Um, And I think it is a compassionate reading that Berger is just too insecure 
to spend some time on his own or to have some no strings attached relationships. Yeah. So he's not a horrible person. He's just processing a breakup. It's so weird because when you're in your 20s, people love talking about like, oh, you're on the rebound. Everyone's all, I feel like everyone talks about your the rebounding as a concept when you're in your 20s. And then people kind of stop talking about it because there's this understanding that, you know, lots of people want to get married and settled by a certain age and therefore grieving processes between relationships become shorter and shorter. Yeah. But the thing that's even more dangerous about rebound relationships in your 30s is that oftentimes people have spent years in these relationships. And so it's their only way they can function with opposite members of the opposite sex is by just slipping into these domestic yeah. situations and these intense, cozy times with people. And it can be very confusing. Lauren and I call it the girlfriend muscle. Those men. Yes. Yeah. And women have it as well. They have a boyfriend muscle. Like yeah, yeah. you do, you have this like, ability for intimacy that and it's taught and it's like ready to go and it's lean and it's mm. pumped and it wants it wants exercising and it's very difficult I think to to not for those people to not exercise it yes yes this is the also the episode where Harry and Charlotte get back together and now Harry and Charlotte haven't been apart for very long but at the same time I'm so happy and I cry so much when they get back together it's one of those scenes in sex in the city that without fail every single time on every single viewing makes me cry yeah yeah and I think I think we we talk about Charlotte a lot as being a character that makes us cry the most and I remember reading something in sex in the city and us where one of the creators said um because Kirsten Davis had worked on Melrose Place and and uh it was either Darren Starr or Michael Patrick King said, um, I love Kirsten because she's one of these beautiful girls who you just want to throw a pie in the face of, you know? And and and, and like I can totally see that, you know? It's um and they've thrown so many pies in her face over and over again, but the more we come to love her, the more we feel the hard edges of those pies in her yeah. face. And we're like, not another pie. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Totally. And so when she's at this um this like Jewish single mixer and you know she's been on the string of dates with like really eligible guys and she has no interest in them and there's this great part where she's talking to this like gorgeous looking guy she's been set up with and um, oh he's so uh, fit that bloke he's so fit and and she goes uh you know where'd you grow up Connecticut oh I went to school there where Yale and she goes oh and he goes something wrong with Yale and she goes <laughs> Oh, no, you know, just Yale. <laughs> so, so tapped out. Yeah. Yeah. She's like, she is like how when I see you talking to men, when I know you don't actually want to have a relationship or actually meet someone and you actually like being single. I, I see you doing that so much. Oh, you know, Yale. <laughs> I said to Caroline recently that I'd had a realisation that even though I think for so much of the last 10 years at the time, I've thought that all I wanted was love. I've had this like very, very sudden and real and intense realization over the last year that actually I don't think I've ever really wanted a relationship in the, in the last 10 years, at least I think I've really like people don't end up single for huge periods of time by accident. I think, mm -hmm. I think I, yeah. I, and you said to me, I said, and I realized it and you were like, I think I realized it before you. And I said, <laughs> when and you said when we were on a coach and there was this really like attractive 
<laughs> this really attractive, like smart, nice bloke. You started talking to us and you said you just kept looking. You were chatting away to him and you just kept looking at me and I had these enormous sunglasses on and I was just <laughs> staring out of the window miles away. <laughs> and you were like, oh, Dolly doesn't want a boyfriend. <laughs> he was so fit and he was really single. And I was like, what is she doing? <laughs> You're just like, it was the epitome of, oh, you know, Yale. Yale. <laughs> I'm so glad like first of all it was very sweet and diplomatic of you not to bring that to my door before I realized it um but I was so reassured when you said that I was like oh yeah but that that reunion moment is so sweet because I also think there's this like really twinkly music that's playing in the background that I think might be badly drawn boy it's badly drawn boy it's the same music that's used in about a boy so it feels really familiar yeah and they just gently move towards each other like magnets. And oh, they say that thing that you say when you're still so strung out on someone and you see them afterwards and you say, how are you? And she says, not good. Yeah, yeah. It's so tender, isn't it? It's so beautiful. Her, her ability as an actress to talk through tears is just so wonderful. Like the way she just speaks and moves her body and just tears just trickling out of her face yeah. and she looks like someone who hasn't noticed they're crying and she and she's like yeah not good and and she said and she's so desperate and so open and she's like you know so if you just want to call me sometime oh yeah it's so lovely and she says i don't care if you ever marry me i just want to be with you and it's this great full circle moment for Charlotte because as we said about her weeks ago, she cares about fake things. Yeah. And to have this sort of like Dorothy waking up in Kansas and realising it. it was all there all along kind yeah. of thing. Yeah. Like, you know, these things don't matter anymore. She's like ripped down all these walls in her mind and it, these things don't matter and she just wants to be with the person she loves. And it's so yeah. simple. And then he gets down on one knee. Yes! And that wrecks me as well because like, because she's still Charlotte and she does care about fake things and she finally gets a real proposal. Yeah. Oh, it's so, it's so wonderful. It's so nice. I'm so so glad you're so right about the pies. And it's like, when she initially has those pies in your face, like they're horrible internalized misogyny and you's like, well, serves you right, you fucking Bambi faced bitch. (laughs) And then you get to this point, it's like, oh, it doesn't matter how perfect and perky and beautiful she is. She's just a girl that wants to be happy and wants to be yeah, loved. Yeah, a girl standing in front of a boy. Yeah. Yeah. You know? Oh. It's so good. And then Gorgeous. you get that great puncturing of the moment by the two girls in the background being like, I'm coming back next week. <laughs> Now, Caroline, we move on to maybe the most important prop of Sex and the City. And again, one that I would empty my bank account to buy you uh, for a birthday present if there is ever a (laughs) Sex and the City prop auction. The post-it. There's something so delicious about a character who is explicitly a failed novelist doing his best work on a post-it and that being the thing that in the culture 
of, of both within the show and the culture that surrounds the show, the fandom that surrounds the show, that is his most iconic piece of written word, you know? Yeah, yeah, it's satisfying, isn't it? It's also, very satisfying. On uh, every outfit on Sex in the City, which I'm sure everyone listening already follows that amazing Instagram account, they do these like, they do these really, really funny and um, kind of granular sometimes quite academic analysis of um, all the outfits on Sex and the City. They post every year Sex and the City fans dressing up for Halloween and it's always so many people dressed up as the poster. It's so good. Why do you think it's stuck so firmly in in the public consensus? <sighs> That's such a good question. I think it says so much about that character, doesn't it? It says so much about his selfishness and his cowardice. And I think it's just, the, it's so crass. I think that's the thing that makes mm. it so comic and so horrifying at the same time. What do you think it is? I do think it is all of that, but I also think it speaks to this larger thing. And, and Carrie goes into it very deeply in the episode when she sees his friends in the club, which is... um. You know, his friends are like doing this very... His friends are so depressing, by the way. I know, they're, they're so They're the depressing. most depressing looking men I've ever seen. I can't believe they got into that club. <laughs> dead. <laughs> um, but they're, they're doing this thing and it's this... Um, the defence you'll often hear from men who either ghost the women in their lives or, you know, don't break up with them with any sense of decency or logic... Where they're like, oh, you know, you know, like girl, women act crazy, and you always end up the bad guy. And and Carrie does in this brilliant monologue. She does this thing of like your insistence of of avoiding the issue because you don't want to be the bad guy and have a confrontation makes you mm. the bad guy. Mm. And I think that is the sentiment that hangs on the post-it, and that's what makes the post-it the most iconic piece yeah. of sort of thing ever. Yeah. Um, and I, it reminds me, like, very recently I had a conversation with a really close male friend who broke up with his girlfriend. And um, I asked him, you know, how it went and everything. And and he said, um, he's like, yeah, you know, I just I just woke up in her flat and um, we'd had a kind of a dodgy night the night before. And I said, you know, this isn't working for me. And she says, can we, she said, can we work on it? And I said, no, I think six months is too soon for us to be having to work on things. I think we should break this off. And I literally, when my friend told me this, we were in the middle of the park, gone, going for a socially distanced walk. And I just leapt on him and I wrapped my arms around yeah, him because I was yeah. so happy that there are still men out there breaking up with people in compassionate yeah. direct ways yeah and he was and he was looking at me he was like i'm the bad guy i broke up with my girlfriend i was like no you're no, not the bad you're guy. not the bad guy <laughs> please tell the other men i agree do you know what else i add as an addendum to that which will expose me for the narcissist i truly am i had someone break up with me a much older guy when i was 18 um because he'd met a grown-up lady and that's <laughs> fair enough <laughs> and fair enough he met a grown-up he said um when he was breaking up with me he said i want you to know that i still really really fancy you and i remember aged 18 being like those are the magic words <laughs> and now i've re like it's awful for someone to reject you emotionally and romantically yeah maybe it's just the wounds i carry from childhood 
I think it's way worse when they reject you physically or sexually. And then I had another awful breakup, age 21, where he explicitly said, like, I don't fancy you anymore. And that was... You're so... Oh, my... So, I first thought you were being crazy, but I had such a physical reaction when you just said that. I was like, oh, no, I would so much rather someone being like, I really fancy you, but it's not working out. Yeah, yeah. So now, <gasps> wow. like, whenever someone I know is breaking up with someone, I'm like, just make it really, really clear that you still find them really hot. <laughs> that you... Like, just tell them that you don't love them anymore, <laughs> but you still really fancy such them. Such good advice. And I do think as well, just going back to your friend with the honesty, I do think that like you can't have it both ways. Like you can't, you can't say like that ambiguity or being left without a reason or being in left with a post-it indeed is the most hurtful thing a man can do. But then like, also get really angry when a man is like really explicit about why it has to end. Do you know what I mean? Like really, it's never going to be pleasant, is it? So the uncomfortable but explicit breakup is just always the best. Yeah, yeah, very true, very true. Um, This is, oh God, we really have to move along, but I do want to say this is one of my favourite episodes, not just because of the post-it, but because I love when they smoke the doobie. (laughs) For smoking a doobie. It was the day I got arrested for smoking a doobie. <laughs> I find it so charming. It's so love the sesh. Oh my God. Samantha and her are so love the sesh in this episode. And I also think Kim Cattrall delivers her most brilliant comic performance when she's um, sharing that banana split with Carrie when they have the munchies. Mm. And she yeah. really turns on Carrie when she feels like Carrie's hogging the ice cream. <laughs> Very real, very good. And I love the, the the love the sesh energy between them is so good. Where she at the very beginning of the episode, she she's walking down the street with Samantha, and she's like, you know, I'm going to spend as much time mourning this relationship as he spent ending it. And then she stands there for five seconds, and then she carries on, and she says, "Let's do something really fucking fabulous tonight. Yeah. What can we do?" And then Samantha immediately has a suggestion, and that to me is the ultimate like friendship fantasy wish fulfillment scene the idea that you could turn to someone and be like what's something fabulous and they could go oh there's a club opening tonight I can get us in like immediately I just I find that so fit just like oh I I just want the world to be open so I can dream of that you know I know I know and also just like you're so aware as you get older, like how much that level of spontaneity wanes naturally in all of your yes. friendships. So it's just like such a golden thing. I love, I love the Samantha and Carrie relationship. Shall we move on to episode eight, The Catch? So I think the interesting part as we get into this area of the season is that we're in Carrie rebounding from Burger, and she gets the most depressing run of lads she ever gets in the show so it's it's charlotte's wedding she gets set up with um i can't remember the character's name howie i've just consulted the notes um but viewers will know him as the jackrabbit shag and everybody in her life is very insistent she get off with this man in a way that feels borderline handmaid's tale (laughs) oh yeah it's so weird like he shows up at brunch and he's printing the invites with Harry and 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 Harry says like oh you Carrie I see this happening and then from that moment on every time 
Carrie's in a social situation. Somebody says to her, why don't you shag that man who you've shown no interest in? And it's like, what's everyone's ulterior motive here? It's so weird. She's not that into it. She has a kind of a nice conversation and then she shags him and it's really, really like bad. Her, like, it's so depressing. She just had this like shit shag with Burger, and now she's having this horrible, objectively horrible shag with this man. It's not that weird when you're a single woman. Okay, go on. Um, everyone becomes obsessed with you shagging certain people and they can't understand why you wouldn't shag certain people. And when people get it in your head that you would be really compatible with someone, they will not rest until you shag them. And they think you not shagging them is somehow you like cutting off your nose to spite your face or being too picky. I hate that. And also you have to remember... Charlotte's about to get married. Samantha's in a relationship for the first time. I don't think Miranda's met Dr. Robert yet. But there's nothing that people in relationships want more than for you to defect. Yes, yes. And Charlotte's energy is very that this season. She's very like, oh, I'm in love. Everyone else should be in love kind of thing. I also found when I watched this, the Jackrabbit sex when I was a teenager, I remember being like, oh, that's why men are having sex like that. You know, when he says, if I'd known you were going to use me, I wouldn't have made love to you like that. It was such a penny drop moment for me as a young woman, thinking back on all these like really uncomfortable, frenetic, disconnected, poundy nights that I'd have. I was like, oh, they Uh. think they're being passionate. Oh God, that's so depressing, isn't it? Yeah. They think they're being passionate. Oh. But then we have Charlotte's wedding. The most beautiful wedding dress I've ever seen on TV, I think. I think it's so beautiful. Yeah, it is beautiful. And I also love that this wedding is so messy and and imperfect. Yeah. And I actually think it's a, a really interesting lamp post, post mark. Um, I do think that comparing this wedding to Charlotte's first wedding is really interesting as a yardstick to see where all those characters, how they've all developed. And I think that if the theme of Charlotte's story is that it's about her accepting reality, then it makes sense that her wedding is just crammed full of mess and, you know, yes, that, 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 that that's that's the kind of natural conclusion to her to her understanding of what's important yes and there's this great moment this is like where um you know carrie says to charlotte when charlotte's crying in the bathroom over how her wedding has gone to shit where she says you know you know wake up you're missing it and i think it's so it's such a powerful delivery like you're missing it you have a man out there who loves you and who will like, who will catch you when you fall. I would love to find a man who is strong enough to catch me. Mm. And I find it quite emotional, actually. We have to talk now about episode nine, The Woman's Right to Shoes. There are so many episodes in this first half of the season that have, like, made it into the cultural conversation in a big way, I think. And this is another one of them, which is um, a great guest-starring spot from Tatum O'Neill, um, as Kyra, the woman who has this baby shower in her very expensive house, makes Carrie take off her shoes so she doesn't want to track dirt in from the outdoors. Carrie's shoes get stolen. She refuses to pay 
to replace the shoes. And then she, not only that, but judges Carrie for buying the shoes at all. I imagine you have a lot to say about this as someone who is both single and has a lot of stupid clothes. (laughs) I love stupid clothes. I love them so much. Um, Yes, and this episode just clarifies so much and becomes more and more impactful for me with every year that I get older. And I think about this episode and the messages of it so much and I reference them so much. Mm. And I think really what it's about is it's not about the shoes. It's not about the money. It's about, it's like social commentary, isn't it? And cultural commentary about Mm. why is it that women who choose to have children and marriages we still deem their lives to be more important, significant, sanctified, urgent, special, in desperate Mm. need of being celebrated than women who don't. And there are very few things that make me angry. I'm generally a very placid person. It boils my piss to such an extreme degree that it's still so accepted. And we're not even, it's so deeply, deeply ingrained in us that we're not even aware that we are in this cult that that means that we dismiss the lives of childless and single women all the time, all the time. This world is not designed for, the Western world is not designed for single childless women to not only like, celebrate and thrive but like really to live happily to be totally honest and comfortably the end yeah (laughs) rant over rant over (laughs) just makes me so mad this episode yeah it makes me furious i think what makes me so furious as well and what's so well painted in the detailing of those early scenes where her and stanford go to this baby shower and they're and these people are so fucking rich Mm. like there there's this point where like they're sitting around with them and their fabulous friends and you know they're all sort of like passing a joint around and talking telling the story about how they like undercut some famous couple for the buying of their summer house Mm. in the hamptons or something Mm. and then the husband chuck Makes this crack where he's like, yeah, if you don't want to get caught stealing Billy Joel's firewood. And it's like, it's just, it's almost like down in the mix. You can barely hear it. But if you've seen this episode a million times as I have, yeah, yeah, yeah. you do get it. And it's, it's this thing of like, it's so elegant that Carrie doesn't just come out and say, your husband earned $15 yeah. million dollars last year. You can afford this. That's not the point. The mm. money isn't the point. It's and and it, it would be so easy for this episode to get really caught up in the who can afford five hundred dollars shoes and who cannot. Mm. It's much more about like what a what a flagrant silly way you spend your life. Mm. Mm. And and this thing, this repeated thing when she talks to Kyra of like she comes back to her flat looking for her shoes and to return the trainers that your one gave her, and. Uh, and Kyra was like, oh, wow, I forgot all about that. Oh, you didn't have to bring those back. And it's so casual. And she's there with her beautiful children. And and Carrie's just trying to figure out what happened to her stuff. Mm, you know, it's very mm. natural. And that kind of comes to nothing. And then she 
it feels really awkward and she you know it's been very judgmental and then Carrie calls her later in the episode and she says I feel really weird about last week we've been friends for years and I don't want a thing like this to come between us and then your one just says oh Carrie I forgot about that days ago this thing of like and you know I'm not I'm, I'm not single but I am childless and I'm not married and I do get this thing sometimes from people who are in that life stage of like Oh, the things you worry about, you people. Yeah, you yeah. know, and and that is yeah, as you said, fucking boils my piss. Yeah, and I think it's like a lot of it is looking at at the economy of attention and love and time, and why it's so unfairly distributed in friendships where one person has a child, children, or gets married and the other person doesn't like the thing that I think is so good about that Billy Joel anecdote that you come in on Mm -hmm. is they're just like regaling the room with stories of like their affluence wealth the like small minute details of their domestic and family life in a way that would be seen as like so crass and unacceptable if it were a single person and actually I've really like picked up people before when they're like slagging off single their single friends for talking too much about like the house that they're about to buy or the flat they're about to buy or their business they're about to launch or their promotion. Um, you know, if someone, if I've ever heard married people or people with children talk about like, oh, they just talk about that so much. It's like, you guys get a lot of time granted that's just inbuilt in like planning a wedding and like being at the bridesmaid shop and, you know, buying the presents for the christening (laughs) and like talking about the new big house you're going to get in the suburbs. Like you get, this has to be fairly distributed. And I think the fact is like, you get the sense with that Kira character that she probably has like no idea what's going on in Carrie's life. And Carrie will be able to tell you the like, birthdays of her children the the names of all the kids when their birthdays are the postcodes of all their various properties the name of both of their businesses like for some reason it's seen as like when you're friends with a family unit it's your duty that you have to basically be able to take an exam on what their life is oh my god i would please like the establishment of a safe word of if i have if i have children before you do and if i'm doing this if you could please just say Tatum O'Neill to me, we and then I would know that I'm no, <laughs> you never not taking your you, life seriously or something because it's such a I can't I just can't believe this happens so frequently and the people who are perpetrating it don't realize. I guess it's because they're busy with their kids. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, but you never ever would, and I have to say as well, like this, I examined this in a storyline in my book, and I got like a fair few people say that that protagonist is really unfair on her friends who are married and have kids, and I do want to make it known, like. It is like a minority of people. It's more just like a ubiquitous attitude that's in the atmosphere even now in 2021. Mm. And also, as Carrie says in that episode, there's nothing lovelier than being invested in your friend's family and their children and celebrating their life choices and being embedded as part of that family and knowing everything about that family and their homes and their schools and their jobs. Like, it's a wonderful thing. That's not the thing that Carrie's resentful of. It's like how generous she is Mm. with her time and attention and patience with that family and how, yeah, she's given nothing back. Yes, yes. And this thing of like when she has the conversation with Charlotte about it, where she's like, you know, she's counting it up and she's like, 
I had, um, you know, a, a wedding gift, christening gifts. I like, I flew to go to her wedding and she's toddling up all these things. She's like, I've spent like $5,000 on this person, my friendship with this person. And what do I get? And, and Charlotte's like, birthdays. And Carrie's like, no, no, everybody gets birthdays. <laughs> like, what are the, what are the moments in a single woman's life where people gather around her to celebrate her, what she's achieved, the choice that she's made. And there's this line where she's like, there's no uh, well done, you didn't marry the wrong guy yeah. party, you yeah. know? And I think that's so, so pertinent. I try and whenever I've got like a friend who has like bought a flat or is renting a flat for the first time, I really like try and go over there and like make a big to do about it because that is a huge deal and it's a hard thing to do. And, you know, like... These things are just as difficult as finding a person to love or reproducing. And yet we don't ascribe them the same level of importance as a society. We don't. And there's no there's no debating it, really. You know, but that is why you are a very good ally to single women. (laughs) Um, So this is also the introduction of Dr. Robert Lee. A very sexy man. Oh, he's absolutely beautiful. And I also love the scene where he's introduced with Miranda initially being so official uh, with her kind of building board meeting. And then she starts flirting with Robert and the others don't like it. And she just says, Lynn, please, we'll get to it. (laughs) (laughs) So good. He's so sexy, this guy. It's almost like you can almost not digest it. Yeah, it's a lot. Like, the the only problem with Dr. Robert is that he comes too late in her trajectory. Totally agree. For him to make any difference at all. Because at this point, like, it doesn't matter who she goes out with, who the boyfriend is. We all know it's Steve in the end, right? Yeah. And it's, it's a shame because, like, this is the first serious boyfriend that's not white that any of the characters go out with. And it's just a shame they fucking picked up the thread too fucking late, you know? Too late. And like even even the way like uh, there's something I um something that I wrote about for Vogue when the announcement about the new reboot happened, about what things I didn't want to happen and things I I I did want to happen. And like I was like, I don't want to see another Dr. Robert or another, you know, Jennifer Hudson's character, Louise, in Sex and City, where you introduce a person of colour very late in the series and you pile on noble traits onto them and you make them extremely attractive, extremely sexy. You make them always say the right thing. You make us fall in love with them, but then you ultimately sideline them because you've already built this relationship with your other white characters and you don't Mm. know how to factor them into those storylines. I would much rather a world where we see, um, like in, in the new reboot, the you know, characters sort of dealing with their racism, dealing with their prejudice, like dealing with, um, you know, sort of a generation that wants to see representation and them knowing they don't have it. You know, mm. I I, mm. I would kind of love that, which obviously I want like more people of colour in the series, but I also want the show to be frank about its own mistakes. And I do think that actually does happen in this episode where it's very tongue in cheek, where you have this thing with after Dr. Robert leaves this sort of co-op board meeting. Yeah. There's like some little old ladies being like, oh, you know, his alimony is very high. He's never owned before. You know, it's the young single guys who have all the parties. And Miranda goes, 
I think we all know what the unspoken thing in his here, ladies. She's sort of alluding to his blackness when really it's just that she wants to fuck him. I was like, yes, <laughs> sex in the city. That's how you sort of deal with the sort of thorniness yeah. of your own short-sightedness. You put a hat on it. You make us laugh with you about yeah. it, you know? Yeah. That's my opinion anyway. I totally agree with you. I also was very interested by the alimony comment, which I hadn't picked up on before. Who do you think his ex-wife is? Who's he been married to? I think he's been married to one of those cheerleaders. I think. Do you? <laughs> I don't know. I, I I reckon he's got a really hot little wife. Hot little ex-wife who's just taking him for everything he's got. Yeah, I think she's he's got a really hot little wife. But I think in my head it was someone who looks like a model but has a really serious job. Like maybe Amal Clooney. Oh, yeah. I love how like, yeah, Miranda kind of just can't believe he's interested in her. I think they've got great chemistry, those those two actors. Yeah, yeah. It's it's one of the few sort of like kissing scenes in the show where you're like, oh yeah, those people are kissing, you know? Yeah. Those yeah, people yeah. be kissing. Um, We're running out of time, but I would like us to get on to Boy Interrupted because I think David Duchovny is so weird in this. I, I was about to say so good in this, but I don't know if I even mean that. <laughs> is he good in this? Or is he just tranked up to his eyeballs? I am so glad you said that because I think there is something so strange about the way he delivers all of his lines and it is it 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 does feel it does feel like he's sedated. Yeah. And it reminds me of like you know those men who are just like so laconic and one note and expressionless and drony that you that they're really hot but you find themself yourself on a date with them and you end up saying just like really mad shit to try and get a reaction yes. out of them. Yes. You find yourself <laughs> being like, don't you think England should implement a one child policy? <laughs> It's, it's, I can't work, I don't, I'm not that familiar with him as an actor, but I didn't watch The X-Files, unsurprisingly. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> but I don't know if that's just how he delivered, like, is that just his style? He just looks, he just looks like he's got out of bed and he he's so unbothered by everything. You're, you think, I, my sister was obsessed with The X-Files, so I, I'm kind of, I did sort of absorb his career by osmosis and yeah that is kind of his delivery is kind it's kind of talking into his shirt sleeves and sort of you know it's kind of evidence that we can see and sort of running running every sentence together and, and i think that maybe they just found that funny and they were like what if we make him really charming and hot but also clearly tranked up to his eyeballs and then it was then had this then build in this thing of like Oh, he's in therapy or whatever, and he's he's in a uh, a facility, and we're gonna see him in eight to ten months. Because even though the show never says this guy seems like he's on something, he so obviously seems like he's on something. Yeah, <laughs> I yeah. I can't tell. Is it just us who thinks that, or does everyone read this episode the same way? I don't know. I'd don't love know. to hear whether other people do. I think the only thing that really works in its favour is that they are so familiar with each other and that they've already yeah. been out and that they've they were in love in the 80s because it feels like that kind of like like when she turns up at the bar and he's like oh hey 
<laughs> like, they haven't seen each other in like 20 years. Uh, oh, that's my old high school girlfriend. Just like, <laughs> it only really works, I think, that like, yeah, mumbling into the shirt, totally unfazed delivery, because maybe it just shows, like, maybe in a way it kind of amps up their like deep familiarity that they have with each other. Yes, yes. And even when he's being really switched on, he like behind the eyes. It looks like he's someone who doesn't even know where the sentence is going. You know, <laughs> he doesn't know where the sentence is going to end up. The line that really depresses me is when they're like, "Oh, we're about to kiss and whatever," and she just like flips her hair or something, and he just says, "Oh, you mean business?" <laughs> just he looks so tired. Oh, you mean business? Oh, you mean she means business? I do. <laughs> I do think they're very cute together, and I think. She feels sort of like off her off her game a little bit in quite a cute, disarming way. Yeah, I think she's adorable this episode. Yeah, I really like her. And I like the bit where he walks her back to her apartment and he's like, I don't know, do we kiss now? And she goes, I don't know, it's very unclear. Yeah. Really <laughs> I find cute. it very cute and very you. Yeah. It's very I much it's how I imagine you on a date. Oh, thanks, babe. Um, <laughs> yeah, I um it made me think about the idea of returning to a first self because I've always found the concept of exes like very sexy. I mean, I really love the idea, but there's a reason why it's so it so rarely happens that someone goes back to their to their first love. Um, but I do I am quite interested in this idea of what would have happened in eight to ten months if Carrie hadn't met the Russian and then reunited with Big. This is also a very iconic episode for different reasons, which is it's the Soho House episode back when Soho House meant something. And it's my favourite <laughs> Samantha line in all of Sex and City, I think, which was when she's trying to pretend to be uh, Anastasia something. Or what is she? Annabelle. Annabelle Bronstein. Annabelle Bronstein. And she's talking to the British waiter in Soho House. And he says, uh, Miss Bronstein is from Sussex. As am I. I'd wager you've never been to the UK at all. And she goes, no. And then she paddles herself in her little lilo. And she goes, I was raised in India. It's so funny. It fucking wrecks my head how funny it is. It's so good. Her English accent is so hilarious in this episode. To be honest, there's a weird thing that I think... Obviously, Soho House is an English, was founded in England, is an English business that then franchised. And they must have been really trying to drive that home in this episode because everyone who works in that, the fact that Jerry Halliwell has a cameo and she's English. So weird. Why do they pick Jerry? If they wanted a British actor or a British figure to confer importance and trendiness onto something, why the fuck would they pick Jerry Halliwell? Like, uh... Uh, Caroline, I would debate that. She was in her It's Raining Men years. And yes. actually, they were very powerful years. So. Very years. <laughs> but like, when you can get Kate Moss, why get Jerry Halliwell? You know? Oh, God, Kate Moss would have been... So- Imagine Kate Moss stumbling in with her little Croydon accent saying that she'd been a PR... What was... Because they say Jerry's Kitty. And what do they say? That she was a an assistant to Samantha or something. Oh, is that what it was? I can't even remember. Oh, I, I just get so yeah. like stunned by the Jerry Halliwell of it all that I just lose all bearing in life. Do you know, when I rewatched that cameo this time, I've always wanted to know like what that voice is that Jerry does. And it sounds like a sat-nav, I've realised. You know, when it's like... 
Oh, shit. The road yeah, is coming shit. up. Turn left. And then turn left again. It's like that kind of like robotic. Yeah. What else is there to do in this heat except sit by the pool and be misted by Evian? <laughs> it's like You're she's so a nice. human sat now. Let's round up with our dream boys of the season, part one. Mine is Chip Kilkenny, mm-hmm. Samantha's stockbroker neighbour. Absolutely pointless stockbroker neighbour. The pointless, the pointless. Also, if you watch that sex scene of when she's on top of him, like throwing a whip around, like she's, it's so dissociative. She's like barely in the room. <laughs> I wouldn't be surprised if those two actors never met. <laughs> So yeah, Chip Kilkenny, um, Smith Jared, obviously my dream man, and oh, Dr. Robert. Um, and then is there anybody else worth fancying? The Prada Man, I'm a big fan of. Um, the man who Charlotte meets at Temple, very hot. Oh, and yeah. just, you know, oh god, do you know who else I love? The man who Char- um who in the Posted episode when they all go to bed when Miranda's wearing her skinny jeans, which spoiler alert is also my outfit of the season. Um, when she says that these guys that she sees that she wants to get weed off of, and she goes, "Oh, and by the way, I get the one with the glasses," and we see the one with the glasses, and he looks exactly like Gavin did when I met him. <laughs> He's just, oh my god, I'm gonna have to watch it and freeze frame on that guy. Just like, just like sexy and nerdy and like the hair is a bit big and he's a bit skinny and the glasses are a bit big. It's just very, very my vibe. <laughs> the one with the glasses is also mine. <laughs> what are your outfits of the season? I think all the outfits in that post episode are great. I love the, the skinny jeans with the sort of the black top and the kind of necklaces and stuff on it. Miranda looks amazing in that episode. I also love... um. Samantha's New York Dolls jumpsuit that she wears. <gasps> I'm so glad you said that. That's my outfit of the season. So good. So, so good. Samantha also has, um, you know, the episode where she is trying to get her bracelet off her. Oh yeah, that's so gorgeous. She has this like, this like ocelot print, dr- print dress with like spaghetti straps that's really framed around the tits. It's stunning. It's like painted onto her. So good. I also love what she wears later when she wears the crop top tie blouse yeah. at the wedding. Yeah, It's kind of like a flamenco blouse. Yeah. Her clothes are great this season. Yes. And then they're not like too fruity and draggy this season, I think. They're just mm. um, like, they're still quite elegant. It's like she's gone back to that sort of femme fatale look. Um, I also yeah. love, and this is going to be something that I'm going to track when we get into the second part of the season. Um, the prom, the, the, the sort of, the romantic sort of dress sense that Carrie comes into. It's like a lot of like um, hourglass floaty dresses, the prom dress she wears to the queer prom, mm. the sort of white dress she wears to Juno Spears when she visits David Duchovny. Like I love that Sarah Jessica Parker in that kind of very romantic style of dress. Yeah. And what are your Carrie Clangers? My Carrie Clanger is Jerry Hallowell. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, and I think all, the scrunchy comment we've covered in detail already, but also um, Carrie saying to Berger, 
aren't you gonna write today? Because I found it very triggering. Ooh. Ooh, yeah, that's horrible. Yeah, yeah. It's very when like because because Gavin has a full time job. Him kind of seeing me still in my pajamas at ten thirty a.m. being like, "Look at you still in your jammies," and I'm like, "Oh fuck yourself." Please, can you tell the story about when he went onto your laptop after you'd done a full day of working and what was in the Google search engines, the last, the last search? I was using his laptop and he opened it up again. And the, the last search was <laughs> Ferrero Rocher, Ambassador, you're really spoiling us. Exact wording. <laughs> he was like, this is it, is it? This is what you had to do on my laptop. Yes. <laughs> What about you? What are your clangers? I think you've covered them all. The only one that I would also chuck in there is, uh, I know I won't let go of it, but in the, the Soho house, um, the, woman at, the woman at reception, who is obviously American trying to do an English accent, when she says, the pool is so fabulous <laughs> that we're at full capacity every day. <laughs> I don't know why it makes my so skin fabulous. It's so bad. The pool is so yeah. fabulous. <laughs> the pool is so fabulous. It's it's real. It shows real growth that all of the Carrie Clangers are not said by Carrie this season, or most of them. Yes, growth, big growth. All right, this has been Sentimental in the City. I've been Karen O'Donoghue. You've been Dolly Alderton. And if you want to write in for the Q and A episode. Please do so at sentimentalpod at gmail.com. Bye. <laughs> Bye. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.